This final parak of the Masechta brought to the beginning two halachas in the name of Chonon ben Avishalayim, and then seven halachas in the name of Admain. The Chacham argued against all of them, and we're now up to the last of those seven halachas which Admain said. Two people, let's say Reuven and Shimon, who both take out a document saying that the other one owes them money. So Reuven borrowed money from Shimon, and Shimon borrowed money from Reuven. And the date written on Shimon's document is later than the date written on Ruvain's document for the repayment. So let's say Ruvain lends Shimon money on Aleph Nisan. And he tells Shimon, you need to pay me back. And this is written in the document that the loan needs to be paid back by Hey Nisan. So that's what's written on Ruvain's Shtarchayv. Ruvain's document which states that he lent money to Shimon. And on Shimon's Shtarchayv it states that he lent money to Ruvain at a later date than Hey Nisan. So after the date that he had to pay back the money. So let's say it says that Shimon lent money to Ruvain on Yud Nisan. So Admin Oimer Admin says, Shimon can claim to Ruvain that if it was really true that I was still obligated to pay you money and that I hadn't paid it yet, then how could it be that you borrowed money from me? By the time that you borrowed money from me on Yud Nisan, I owed you money. So why would you write a whole new document and create a, no- a new loan? Just take the money as the return for your debt. So the fact that you borrowed money from me implies that at that time already, I did not owe you money. So it must be that I paid it back already. Especially since this time was a few days, it was after the deadline for me to pay back. So I claim that I did indeed repay you. And here's my proof, you borrowed money from me afterwards. However, Vachachom Emir and the Chachom argue and they say that Ruin can collect his money for his Shtarchoi, for his document, and Shimon can also collect the money which is stated in his document. Mishnah Yud, the last two Mishnahis now come back to the folks of our Masechta, the obligations, the rights of a husband and a wife. And Misha tells us that Sholish Harotz Dan Isuin, Eretz Yisrael is split into three areas of land regarding marriage. And the Mishnah will go on to explain. Yehuda, the Eva Hayarden Mahagolil, those three areas are the areas of Yehuda, the area of Eva Hayarden, the other side of the river Yarden, and the Golil. Now, what exactly does it mean that, th- that it's split into three? Because the halach is that it is forbidden to force one's wife to move from one city to another. You can't just get up and say we're moving tomorrow from a city in Yehuda to a city in the Golil. Even if the actual city is very similar, they're both large cities, nevertheless one cannot force his wife to move to a different area of Eretz Yisrael. And the truth is, the Mishnah is talking specifically about a case where she comes from that land. So if you marry a woman who comes from Yehuda, and you marry her in Yehuda, so then one cannot force her to move to the Golil, to Eva Hayardain. It would be harder for her to go and live in a different place which she's not familiar with. You also can't force her to move from a smaller village to a different village in a different area of Eretz Israel. However, but within that land, if it's within Yehuda, or it's within Golil, or within Eva Hayardain, then you can force her to move to another city. We can force her, the husband can force her to move with him from one city to another, or from a village to another village. However, even if it's in the same land, one cannot force her to move from a large city to a small village, or to, from a small village to a larger city, even if it is in the same area. The reason being that there are advantages and disadvantages in both of them. She can claim she doesn't want to move from a large city to a village, because there's much fewer things available, 
and there's less people. On the other hand, if you want to force her to move from a village to a city, she can claim that she finds it healthier in a village, it's quieter, it's cleaner, eh? And therefore, if she does not agree, then one cannot force her. One can force his wife to move from a living place of bad quality to a different living place which is better quality. We're going to explain that to mean an area where most goods and products are cheaper, that's considered to be a better place to live, and therefore even if his wife does not want to move there, as long as the conditions we mentioned above are fulfilled, one would be able to force her to move to the area which is considered in the eyes of most people to be better. One cannot force her to move from a place of living which is better to a place of living which is considered to be worse quality, where there would be a worse quality of life. Naram Shimingam Lil Omar Shimingam Lil says, interestingly, One can even not force her to move from a place of living where the quality of life is considered to be bad to a place of living where the quality of life is considered to be good. Even though most people would consider that to be a positive move, if she refuses and she does not want to do so, then one cannot force her. Which literally means because the place where it's good to live checks, it examines the body, sort of examines it if it's healthy, and that's a figurative way of saying that when one moves to a place where the environment is different, then it can affect the health of a person. Everything's very unfamiliar, and the atmosphere and the environment is different, and therefore there is a disadvantage in moving. You know, if she's moving to a place where, let's say, the produce and the food is cheaper, so she might end up changing her diets, and when one changes that, so it can affect their health, just like any change in habit. So you would not be able to force her, even in such a case. Mishnah Yud Aleph HaKolman in Eretz Yisrael Anybody can force their spouse, as we're going to see, either one's husband or one's wife, you can force them to move to Eretz Israel, and at the same time, neither the husband or wife are able to force the other one to move to a place outside of Eretz Israel if they are currently living in Eretz Israel. Similarly, anybody can force their spouse, their husband or wife, to move up to Yerushalayim, even if they are already living in Eretz Israel, since Yerushalayim is considered to be a more holy place where it's even preferable to live, one can force their spouse to move there, and neither of them are able to force the other one to move out of Yerushalayim to another place, even if that other place is inside of Eretz Yisrael. This applies both to the man, to the husband, and to a woman, to the wife. Both of them are able to force their entire family to move up to Eretz Yisrael or to Yerushalayim. Now the second half of this Mishnah ends off the Masechta talking about the actual Kasuba, we're going to see a debate as to whether the obligation of Kasuba is mid or mid And actually, at the beginning of Perek Hay, Rumei and Rabbi Yehuda also argued about whether the Kasuba was mid or mid the obligation for one to obligate himself to give his wife a kasuba. However, both Mishnahis discuss very different cases. The point is the reasons lying behind them is whether the obligation of kasuba is made a raisa or midrabanon. But before we even get to that machlekes, the Mishnah tells us, not so each of Eretz Yisrael. If one marries a woman in Eretz Yisrael, the Gershob Eretz Yisrael, and he divorced her inside of Eretz Yisrael. So in that case, certainly when he gives her the 200 zuz or the 100 zuz, depending on whether she was a basula or an almona at the beginning of the marriage, as we learnt at the start of the Masechta, 
In this case, certainly, he would give her 200 or 100 Zuz from the Eretz Yisrael currency, from the coins which are used in Eretz Yisrael. Not so Eretz Yisrael. What happens in the second case now, if he marries a woman inside of Eretz Yisrael, and he divorced her when they were in a place called Kapotkia, which is a different country near to Eretz Yisrael. In this case, since the time of the marriage when he obligated himself in the Kasuba, they were in Eretz Yisrael, so he obligated himself to 200 or 100 Zuz of Eretz Yisrael money. And Eretz Yisrael coins are worth less than Kaputkia coins. So as mission knows Eretz Yisrael, he would have to give her 200 or 100 Zuz from the money from the coins of Eretz Yisrael, so he would gain that way because it's worth less than money from Kaputkia. On the other hand, what happens if he married the woman in Kapotkia and he divorced her in Eretz Yisrael? So I would think that the halacha should be that since he obligated himself to 100 or 200 zuz of Kapotkia coins, which are worth more, he would be obligated to give that. However, says the Mishnah, there is a leniency. Since according to this opinion of the Mishnah, the obligation of the Kasuba is only midirabonon, as long as he divorced her in Eretz Yisrael, that's enough that he would only be required to give her he would only be required to give her money of Eretz Yisrael, which is worth less. However, says you would have to give her from Kapotkia money, because you obligated yourself to the money when you were in Kapotkia. Rabbi Shimon Gamliel says there's no room for such a leniency, because according to him, the obligation of the Kasuba is Midoraisa. Alright, however, according to everybody, if he married the woman and divorced her in Kapotkia, then certainly he would be obligated to give her a kasuba of 200 or 100 zuz using coins of Kapotkia which are worth more. Solik Maseches Kasubas Mazeltov. The next Masechta, Maseches Nedorim, contains 11 prokim, and the focus of Maseches Nedorim are vows. A neder means a vow, and the truth is there are two main categories of Nedorim. They are known as Nidre Isur and Nidre Hekdash. Nidre Hekdash refers to when one vows to bring a korban, or he vows to designate something to the Beis Hamikdash. If one wants to give something to the Beis Hamikdash, he does it by making a vow. The second category are Nidre Isur, which is when one makes a vow not to benefit from a particular item or a particular person, and this Masechta discusses only this category, Nidre Isur. Nidre Hekdash is a focus of Seder Kodshim, which discusses all things to, which are connected to the Beis HaMikdash and Karbonus. But this Masechta, Masechta Nidorim, discusses Nidre Isur, when one makes a vow to prohibit the benefit from a particular item. Now within Nidre Isur, there are two subcategories. There are two kinds of vows which one can make. One is where one prohibits himself, and the second kind is where one prohibits other people. If I'm prohibiting myself, then it doesn't matter who owns the item, or if anybody owns it, I can make a vow that any particular item in the world is forbidden for me and I can't benefit from it. I'm able to talk about a specific item, I can also talk about a category, for example, I can prohibit all apples, and then I would be forbidden to benefit from any of those apples. Now the second kind of Nidre Isur, which one can make, is where he prohibits other people. Now this type of vow one can only do if he owns the item. Of course I can't make a vow that you can't benefit from something which belongs to you. However, something which belongs to me, such that I have full ownership and rights over this item, so I also have the right to prohibit you from benefiting from it, such that if you do come and benefit from it, apart from the prohibition of stealing, you would also violate the prohibition of going against the neder. 
as well as this, I'm also able to forbid something on the entire world. If I own it, I'm able to say that it should be forbidden for everybody, including myself. Now there's another concept very similar to a neder, and that is known as a shavua. A shavua is also a way of stating something with your speech and creating a new prohibition as a result of your speech. For example, one can make a shavua that he's not going to eat a particular piece of bread or that he is going to eat a particular piece of bread. Now what is the difference between a shavua and a neder? The Gemara explains that a shavua is an isr gavra and a neder is an isr chefza. What exactly does that mean? An isr gavra means that it's a prohibition on the person. Meaning, if you define what the obligation is, it's the fact that this person is forbidden to do a particular action. So if he makes a shavua not to eat a loaf of bread, there is now a prohibition that this person, his action of eating the loaf of bread is forbidden. On the other hand, a neder is an isr chefza. And this is quite a difficult concept to understand, but an isr chefza means that the prohibition falls upon the item. It's almost as if that item is forbidden to be eaten. As if there's no prohibition on the person. Of course, this is not the case. It doesn't make sense to say that a loaf of bread is forbidden to be eaten. And of course, it's the person himself who is forbidden to eat that loaf of bread. And he would violate the prohibition if he does eat it. The point is, though, the law is not that his action of eating it is forbidden. Rather, he's obligated to ensure that the loaf is not eaten. Whereas a shavua refers more to the action which the person is doing, the gavra, isr gavra, a neder, which is an isr chefza, the prohibition does not fall upon the action of eating, rather the prohibition is to allow this loaf of bread to be eaten. Now at the moment it seems like there's not really any difference, but we will see in the second perek that there are several ramifications because of this difference, and we'll mention one of them now, and that is when one does accept the neder or shavua upon himself, he needs to express what the prohibition is going to be. So when one makes a shavua not to eat, not to eat a loaf of bread, he would say, for example, shavua sheloi oichal, a shavua that I will not eat. On the other hand, when it comes to a neder, he would say, he would say, osur olai. This loaf of bread is forbidden upon me. So that's one ramification of this difference, how exactly he needs to accept the neder or shavua upon himself. Now one last final note of introduction, and that is, although we're talking a neder by definition is to prohibit the entire benefit of an item, one is able to make a neder on a particular benefit of that item. You could say this loaf of bread is forbidden for me to benefit from it with regards to the benefit of eating. And that way you'd still be able to benefit from other things which come from the bread. You just would be forbidden to eat it. It should be noted, by the way, that the reason why Mesech Nadorim is found in Seder Noshim, which discusses laws to do with marriage, which seems not to be connected to vows. So the truth is, the last two prokim of the Mesechta discuss the ability of a husband or a father to annul the vows of his wife or his daughter. And indeed, we had a couple of Mishnahis like that in Mesech's Kesubus, and that's why Mesech's Nadorim is found after Mesech's Kesubus. Be as it may, we'll begin Mishnah Aleph now. When one makes a neder, the Torah explicitly says that in order to do so, one has to say it with his mouth. It's not enough to accept that upon himself in his mind. He needs to express clearly what he, which prohibition he is accepting upon himself. Now, when he does so, there is something known as hatposa. 
Hadposa refers to the requirement that when one makes a neder, he needs to compare it to something else which is already forbidden. For example, he would say, this particular item is forbidden for me, kakarban, like a carbon. Carbon doesn't necessarily refer to carbon, it refers to any hektash, something which belongs to the base hamikdash. And the point is that just like it's forbidden to benefit from something which belongs to the base hamikdash, so too this item is going to be forbidden to benefit from. And we'll learn at the beginning of the next parak which types of things one is able to compare the prohibition to. For example, a carbon, something which belongs to the base hamikdash. But for now, we just need to know the concept of hatpasa, and that is comparing this prohibition to something else which is already forbidden to benefit from. Now, when one states his neder, if he spells out clearly the entire prohibition, he says, this item will be forbidden for me like a carbon, that is known as ikar haneder. That is the main full neder. He included everything in his speech. Now, what happens if he says something which the implication is that he wants to make a vow, but he doesn't make the full, he doesn't say the full formula. He doesn't say it should be forbidden upon me like a carbon. He just says, I'm going to be separated from that item, for example. So he didn't say the full formula. Nevertheless, it is still valid, and it is enough, and that's known as a yadlaneder. A yad, which literally means a handle. And the point is, the yad only includes part of the speech. So it's as if you're sort of holding on to the rest of the speech, but you've only got the handle. So although you did not state everything in your speech, nevertheless, the neder is still valid, just like an ikar haneder. Alright, and thirdly, there's something known as a kinui. A kinui is where you say the neder, but in a different language. And we'll learn exactly what a, what a kinui is later on in this perek, but for now, the Mishnah tells us that kol kinui nedorim kanadorim, any kinui for a neder is considered like the neder itself. Although the vow is made by speech, so I may have thought that one needs to say it in Lashon HaKodesh, the language of the Torah, the Mishnah is telling us that no, it's enough that you say it in a different language, and it will be valid just like a regular neder. And the same applies to vacharomim. Bechirem is a particular way to make something belong to the Beis HaMikdash, another type of vow. So if you say it in a different language, or you use a different term to refer to the Chirem, Kacharomim, it's considered like a regular Chirem and it would be valid. Or Shavuos Kachavuos, a Kinui of a Shavua is like a regular Shavua, and a Zeros Kanaziros, and a Kinui to become a Nazir is if he accepted upon himself to be a Nazir in the regular way. A Nazir is somebody who is forbidden to drink wine, to become Tomei, to have a haircut, and if one accepts upon himself to be a Nazir, and he uses a Kinui, it is valid, and again we'll discuss Kinuyim later on in this Perek. The second part of this Mishnah now discusses Yodois, a Yad, which is where you say, you don't say the full formula of the Neder. when who says to his friend, Mudrani Mimach, I am under a Neder from you. Or Mufrash he says, I'm separated from you. Mufrash I'm distanced from you. And in each of these three cases, he explains, in what way am I separated from you? That I will not eat anything which belongs to you. That I won't taste anything which belongs to you. Although it's clear that what he wants, nevertheless, it's not all included in the speech itself. The words that he is saying don't express exactly what he wants, even though it is clear from the context that he wants to make a neder, and so it's considered to be a yad, but nevertheless, also it is forbidden. What happens if he says, I should be banned from you? There's something known as a nidui, where somebody can be banned by basedin from having contact with other people, but it can also be used to express that he wants to be distanced from somebody. So if somebody uses that expression, Rabbi Akiva was in doubt and ultimately was stringent in such a case because of the possibility that it does express a neder. Alright, and the third part of this Mishnah 
tells us that if somebody added, he said that this thing should be forbidden for me, and he added, Knidre Yoshoim, like the Nadorim of wicked people. So if he add that on, so in most cases it doesn't make a difference. Not our Benazir of a Karman of a Shavua. The Neder would still be valid in the case of a Nazir, or in the case of a Neder which he compares to a Karban, and in the case of a Shavua. Because wicked people would also accept these things upon themselves. Kasherim. But if he says that it should be forbidden like the Nadorim of righteous people, Lomaklum, he's not said anything and the Nedar is not valid. The reason being that it is preferable not to make Nadorim and not to make Shavuos and not to become a Nazir, because one is adding on upon oneself more prohibitions, and he's leading himself to possibly commit Averis. Therefore, righteous people generally do not make Nadarim, so if he is comparing it to a Neder of a righteous person, so that means that he's not really making a Neder, because righteous people do not make Nadarim. However, if he says it should be Kanidvaisam, like their Nadova, Nadova refers to something which one voluntarily gives, so he would be forbidden if he was making a acceptance to become a Nazir, or if he said that this animal should be a Korban, because righteous people would also designate Korbanais, and occasionally they would also become a Nazir, so as long as you use a slightly different word, you use the word of Nadova, instead of neder, so that ref- shows that you're referring to those few cases where righteous people would become a nazir, and therefore it would be valid. And all of these laws regarding kinuyim and yodos will be discussed at greater length throughout this parak.